We are starting a look at the book of Daniel this week. It's going to be about an 11-week series. And it's an interesting uh, book of the Bible because it's full of prophecy, it's full of history, and it's full of biography. And so from a preaching aspect, it's kind of a challenging uh, book of the Bible because how you preach when you are talking about a historical chapter like today is different on how we will preach when we get to the prophetic and how that applies to us today. And so it, it, it's going to be a fun 11 weeks as we challenge ourselves, as we work through this, as we study the Word of God together and even ask some of those questions of what, what does it really mean? What, what does the book of Daniel mean to us today in 2023 in Canada? But I think the overall theme that you're going to hear over the next 11 weeks is that God has not been defeated. God is alive. God is at work. And he's working to restore his people. We're going to see this in the lives of the Israelites over, over these coming weeks. And seeing how God, at, 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 at the same time, has allowed the Israelites to go into captivity. Has, and, and yet is, is showing his power to this whole kingdom. The Babylon nation back in that day would be the superpower of their day. They were the greatest and strongest army. They had everything that they wanted. They were, were a modern society. They were a powerful army. And yet God is able in these 11 chapters to show his power to their leaders. Now the author of this book is Daniel. And the setting is Babylon, as I've said. And these 11 chapters are going to take us over 70 years of history. And in those 70 years, we're going to see God's power on display through miracles. We're going to see Daniel allowing God to use him to interpret dreams, to, uh, to uh, have influence with the government. And, and anything that you can kind of think of as happening in our world today, we're going to see within this book of Daniel. Now, there's some interpretive challenges. What does this mean for us today? When we look at, at, at the dreams that the King Cyrus, King Nebuchadnezzar have throughout these 11 chapters and Daniel's uh, interpretation of them, it's hard sometimes to say, well, what can we take from this dream? What can we take from this prophecy? And how does it apply to us here in 2023? And so we're going to struggle through that, slog through that together some Sundays. But it's written, this book, to encourage the exiles, <coughs> the Israelites who had been gathered from their homes in Israel and forcefully led into Babylon. And it's written to encourage them and to remind them of who God was and is. And so my prayer as we go through this over these coming weeks is that you will be challenged, you will be encouraged to remember who God was back in the day of Daniel but who, as well, God is, even still today, in Charlie Lake, B.C., in 2023. And finally, it's written to show God's sovereign power through miracles. We are going to see some amazing things over the coming weeks, uh, starting with today. It's not a miracle that, that we look at and we think, wow, that is amazing. But just as Daniel takes a step of faith with his friends and says, we don't want to eat the food of the king." Give us vegetables, give us water, and, and watch how much stronger we can be, how much clearer our heads can be in, in, in just doing that. And God 
and his power was on display even in that. So let's jump right in. We're going to read the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, uh, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you're welcome to do so, and if not, it'll be up on the screen. In the third year of the reign of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his, chief, uh, of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were, enter- they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen uh, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So let's stop there for a second, and let's lay a little bit of the framework of what is going on here. We're seeing this nation taken, and of this group, of this, the, these thousands of people that are taken into captivity, we find out that some of them are from the king's court. Some of them are nobility, some, so, so rich, and they're used to living in this rich lifestyle in Israel. Now, Daniel and his three friends were in this group. They were actually set aside, and they were chosen by the rulers of Babylon in order that they may uh, begin to learn the customs of Babylon, that they would learn to live everything uh, that, that was going on around them. Because their, their thought process was, our empire is so huge. And in order to keep everybody in line, in order to, to make it so that everybody doesn't rise up against us and overthrow us, if we can get some of the wisest, brightest, smartest people from all these places that we have, have controlled, if we can get them on side, if we can have them learning our ways, hearing our ways, speaking our language, then there's less chance that there's going to be a revolt. But it's interesting that Babylonian religion held space for other religions and gods. But here's what they did. So when the relics of the temple that were taken, that were holy and, and of God, they were taken to Babylon, they were carried off by the Babylonian army. It would have made the people in Babylon gloat, and it would have made them rejoice because in bringing these artifacts back from the, the God of the Jews, they would have been saying, our gods are mightier, our gods are greater, and look at this, we have overcome this God that we have heard about. And so there wasn't so much a level of respect that they took these things and brought them back to Babylon. It was more to gloat, it was more to, to remind the Israelites that their God was weaker than the God of the Babylonians. It was to remind the Babylonians that their God was stronger than, than the Israelites. They had overcome, they had, they had defeated their army. What I love about this is God shows patience here. And we're going to see throughout this book that God's power is shown over and over and over again. And in those moments, 
It, sometimes it'll be subtle. Sometimes it'll be right in your face. Sometimes it will make the king of Babylon go to their knees and proclaim that the God of the Israelites is the one true living God. But God shows patience because the Israelites had turned their back on him. The Israelites were not living in a manner which they had been called to live. And because of that, they were allowed by God, the living God, to be carried into captivity. Now, in a perfect world, God would have raised up right at the beginning and saved them, and life would have been great, but they wouldn't have learned their lesson. It took going into captivity, God showing his patience and allowing things to play out as they did in order for the Israelites to see their need for their God. Now we see this thing, and I mentioned that, that they, they wanted to take some of the people of their fallen, the, the places that they had defeated, to make them know and make them understand the ways of, of Babylon. They wanted to choose the brightest, the strongest, the socially adapt, people who just had everything together. As I was reading this, it, it, it kind of reminded me of, of when I read the, the job posting for this church. It was like, they're looking for somebody tall and handsome and good looking. And then you got me. But in this case, <laughs> thanks for laughing. <laughs> in this case, they were actually finding these people. They were finding young boys. They were about 14 or 15 years old. And they were entering into the service of the king. You can imagine what it would be like uh, to be that young, be torn apart from your families, and then being told, you have to learn everything from this country. Now, 14 or 15 back then was a lot more mature, a lot further along than a 14 or 15-year-old today. And yet, it was still really young. And they were, had to be physically free of any bodily defects. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that meant. But they had to be handsome. They had to be able to represent the king of Babylon in such a way that people would look at them and say, this person is noble. This person is, is, is somebody that we should respect. But it wasn't just their looks. They also had to be mentally sharp. They had to be able to learn new language. They had to be able to learn a whole new religion, really. They had to be able to learn um, all of the customs of Babylon. Not only that, they also had to be smart and socially aware. They had to be poised and able to be strong, good young leaders that would help keep the other countries in line. And that's why you would pick these defeated people for roles of leadership. Because Nebuchadnezzar, if he was anything, he was, he was politically savvy. He knew that people did not want to be ripped from their homes and taken to a foreign land and he knew that in order to keep them happy, he had to at least let a, a, a good chunk of them be in roles where they would feel important. He had to give them houses and housing, and, and he did this. They, weren't, they, they were slaves, and yet they weren't, um, they weren't horribly treated all at once. And so he was able to take these young men, it was more than, than, than these four that were mentioned, and he was able to teach them, to grow them into these roles. John Perquist uh, suggests further that Nebuchadnezzar's empire expanded. There was more bureaucracy that needed to happen. He needed ambassadors. He needed all people all over his empire that would keep uh, him aware of what was going on, that would try to keep people in line. 
And so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were being used as a political tool and a political ploy to keep their society in place, to keep their society in check. They had to learn all about what it meant to live in Babylon. Now, we are told that they come, came from the, the royal line, and they also came from nobility. Now, if you were reading any news this week, this book came out by, by Prince Harry. And in it, and, and I haven't read it, but I've heard, uh, I've heard a bunch about it. We're not going to get into that at all. But it struck me that as they, him and his wife came to the U.S., there was a lot of, they wanted to continue to be treated like royalty. They wanted to continue to, to have the perks of being a prince and a princess, even though they left their home. Uh, but in there, he also talks about the stress of being in, uh, in royalty in the UK and having to, to follow all the patterns and, and, and say and do all the right things. And it was overwhelming for him. And it strikes me then that as we talk about Daniel and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how overwhelming that must have been. Not only learning a new language, a new religion, and, and, and trying to follow as much as they can, but remembering who God was, would have been very, very difficult. And so let's find out what happened in verses 8 to 16. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile, to defile himself this way. Now God had caused, <coughs> excuse me, had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. I'm guessing there's a few of you that struggle with this. I, I like steak. And, and I'm, I, I'm okay if I... I tell people that. And I, I bet you Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I bet you they liked it too. And yet they decide, they make this conscious effort of saying, in a small way, we can show that we don't answer to this earthly king, but we answer to our king, the creator God. And so Daniel comes and he goes to the official and he says, we don't want to eat of this food. We don't want to partake of it. It's been defiled. Um, most of that food that was at that table would have been um, offered to idols beforehand and, 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 and other sacrifices as well. And so many scholars uh, will say that that's the main reason that they said we don't want this food. The problem is, as we're looking at that, is likely the vegetables came from the exact same place had been also given to the same idols as well in the same way. And so we don't really know what the thought process was behind this, what Daniel was thinking. But what we do know is that he recognized that if he was to defile himself by doing everything the king said, 
he would likely, sooner rather than later, give up his love and his passion and his desire to follow after God, the true living God. And so he says to the, this official, you know what, I've got a better idea. Rather than giving us all this, the choice meats and all the choice things that the king gets to eat, remember this was right from the king's table. So that means it wasn't just the second rate uh, meats. It wasn't just the, the, the extra leftovers. It was right from the king's table. It was the best of the best. And he says, we want to just have vegetables and just have water. Now, it's interesting because Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'd went along with their name change. They were listening and, and learning this new education. It could even be said that they were learning a new religion. And I mentioned that a few times because we don't hear them saying they're not learning about it. We, they do stand against it. But they're hearing about all the customs. They're hearing about all these idols, about all these gods. And we're going to see how Daniel lives within that tension in the weeks to come. Now, it's also interesting that their new names that they were given, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all had representation to the different gods of Babylon. And yet they don't protest that. So they don't protest their, their, their education, their name change, things like that. And yet Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do put their foot down about the food because it would defile them. Now, like I said, there, there are some things within there that, that are tricky to understand, tricky to interpret. But we do know that, that they were dedicated to God and God alone. And so there's that, that, that idea of living in the world but not of it. Of, of going to, how, how, how would we talk about that today? Going into our schools, going into our businesses that maybe don't believe God. Living in that tension and still remaining strong in our faith in Jesus Christ. John Oswald in NIV application uh, Bible, he surmises that maybe this tension that I'm talking about uh, and, and, and only taking the water and vegetables, even though they may have also been dedicated to idols, may have been just Daniel and his friends just saying, we want to leave a space for God's power to be witnessed. We want to leave a space for others to see that God is still in control. And Daniel may not have even known if, if the king and, and his court would have noticed or if, if, or if it was to be an example to the other Israelites. We don't know that. But we do know this. Their actions honored God. The choices they made, the actions that they took, they were honoring to God. And we're, we, we see that, that after the 10 days, we're going to read that in a few seconds, they were healthier. They weren't tired. They weren't suffering from their, their mind just being exhausted and tired. They were smarter. They were wiser. They were healthier than everybody else who was doing this. And I wonder what are some of the ways that we are able to honor God within our culture. Oftentimes we get sucked into that, into that the, the other vortex of saying, man, where is God in our culture? Man, how are we supposed to live in this culture and I wonder if we could somehow change that, that thought process around to say, how can I, like Daniel, live within a fallen culture and still proclaim his name, still <coughs> follow after God at all things? I love this because Daniel doesn't get mad. 
about all the things that are being forced upon him. But he does change his tactic. There's something about anger that keeps us from being heard. Now, Daniel could have been angry and, and refused the food, but he goes about this in a tactical a tactic way where he, he approaches this official and he says, hey, I have a plan. I have a thought. I want you to just feed us vegetables and water for the next 10 days. And this, this, this official essentially says, I'm not doing that because that's going to put my life on the line when you guys aren't up to where you need to be. So I refuse to do that. And again, Daniel could have put his foot down and said, no, we want to live like, we like, like we're used to. We are used to being listened to. We want our old way. And yet he doesn't. He just says, why don't you give us 10 days? And if in those 10 days you see that we're getting weaker, you see that our minds aren't as sharp as they were, then we'll have our answer. But what he's saying here in, in, in doing this is he's saying, you know what, I trust my God. And I'm not going to make a big show about this right now. Daniel has moments where, and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the, in the uh, weeks to come where God is on display in a massive, mighty way. And, and, and so there's a place for that. But in this moment, he's like, God, our God will protect us. And after those 10 days, you are going to see a change in us that the others won't have. Now, his tactic here is so counter to most cultures, and even our culture today, isn't it? When we don't get our way, it's just kind of built within us that we, we think if we can just say it a little louder, if we could just say it a little clearer, then people would hear us and, and change their ways. And that, that rarely happens, does it? It rarely happens that the loudest, sometimes the loudest person gets their way, but I've yet to see somebody yelling and screaming about people who are sinning bring many people to God. But I have seen people that walk alongside people who are struggling and who are sinning and just gently walk with them and remind them of what God has done for them, where God is leading them. And it's amazing that in that quiet, that quiet boldness, how people see and they hear God. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for boldness. And, and like I said, we're going to see that. But there's also a place for quiet. There's also a, a, a case for just saying in a gentle way, I won't do that. But here's what I'm willing to do. And Daniel does this. And, and, and Jesus certainly didn't do this when he was brought before his accusers, did he? He didn't yell and rant and scream. Rather, he just said, I am who you say I am. And the lashes he took, the nailing on the cross, we don't once hear him protesting against what people are doing. The apostle Stephen is arrested and he goes before the Sanhedrin and he speaks under the power of God, but we don't get this sense that he's ranting and raving and he's taken outside the city and he's stoned. And we get this imagery of a man who is dying at peace knowing that he has done what God has called him to do. So like I say, we're going to hear the flip side of that. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't go into the fiery furnace without a big statement being made. Daniel doesn't get thrown into the lion's den without a big, giant, loud statement being made. 
But there are times like this where Daniel recognized, you know what? I'm just going to be steadfast in following after God. Step after step after step. So we need to ask God, when are those moments that were loud and we get in people's face and we say, this is what God is about, this is God, who, who God is. And when are those moments where maybe we quietly and gently show them who God is through our actions? Yes, we can honor God by being loud and boisterous, but we can also honor God in those quiet moments. And I think the moments for us to be quiet and calm are far more than those moments where we rise up in arms and say, this will not do. People see us probably 80% of the time just going through life as regular people, regular men and women, and they get to see how we respond to this world that is turning its back on God. Daniel knew that God would show his power. And what do we have to lose when God's in control? What is there for us to lose when we recognize God's power in our lives? Daniel turns to the guard whom the chief official put in charge of their diet, and he, he says, give us nothing but vegetables, give us nothing but water for these 10 days. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. Like I said, it would be hard. That would be hard for me to do. The great royal banquet food compared to just vegetables and water. That would be hard to do. But Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that God was in control. And Daniel went a step farther. He knew God was in control, not just in the big ways, not just in their, their being saved by Babylonian captivity, but even in the small ways of how he could continue to live out a godly lifestyle in the midst of a fallen country, in the midst of a place that didn't even know the living God. Daniel knew that God was in control in all things. And he knew that if God was in control, then what did they have to fear at the end of the day? Let's go to verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And David could understand, or sorry, Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. God's power at work. All they did was eat vegetables and drink water. And yet, we find that in every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king questioned them in, they were ten times more knowledgeable than his magicians, than his enchanters that he already had in his kingdom. Now Nebuchadnezzar didn't know it at the time, but the only true living God was on display. His power was on display in the lives of these four men. And that power was going to ramp up and be shown in greater 
in mightier ways. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were able to take even that small sense of responsibility and turn it into a place where God was on display. They had knowledge and understanding that was above and beyond even people that had lived their whole lives there. And here's the thing, the guards and the king, they likely took credit for the knowledge and understanding of these four men. <coughs> likely what was heard at some point as, as, as their wisdom was being shown was people saying, you know what, this just proves that our religion, this just, pr just proves that our way of living, this just proves that us overtaking the Israelites is justified because look how wise and smart these men have become as a result of living under our culture and our system. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they remain silent. But they knew differently, didn't they? And they didn't boast. They had time to boast coming up, but they didn't boast. They just continue to work, knowing that God will make himself known, that God would make himself glorified in the proper and in the right time, and we're going to see that. Just because most of the people gathered there didn't know the source of these guys' power and wisdom, it doesn't mean that God's power wasn't on display. Even in our silence, even in our quiet moments, we are projecting to others the power of God at work in our lives. And God's power was on display over the, in the increase of these four men and their knowledge and and they were smarter and above even the wisest people of Babylon. John Oswald says the description of Daniel here and his actions later remind us of Joseph, who played a similar role in the court of the Egyptian pharaoh. God blessed him as well with the ability to interpret dreams in a style that even this pagan monarch could recognize. Knowledge and understanding, it comes from God. What they meant as a way to keep a nation down, to keep people down, God used as a way to show his mighty power at work. So as we leave here today, how is chapter 1 of Daniel relevant to us today? Well, still today, God is in control. We live in a land that has taken God out of almost all that it can possibly do. Keep to your churches, do what you want in the churches, but don't, don't say much and speak much into society. Don't do those things, we're told. And yet, even in the midst of that, God is in control. And I would suggest that we too live in a strange land. <laughs> Sounds funny saying it. We live in a strange land, though. We live in a, a land that is foreign to us. The land of our grandfathers, where God was proclaimed the land of our, our, of our grandfathers where we're going to church was a sign of, 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 you were shown a sign of respect. The land of our grandfathers were to be a minister or a leader in a church was, was something that people looked to with honor and respect. Those are not what we find anymore. One of my favorite authors, Erin McManus, is also a pastor, and he always likes to tell the joke that the best thing about his first book being published was that when people, he lives in Los Angeles, asks, asks him what he does for a living, he tells them he's an author now instead of a pastor, and they get, he gets much more uh, friendly looks. And 
he, he's bold in his faith, so he tells it that strictly as a joke. But we recognize that we are in a world that is different than it once was. We are not a nation that, that at its core is following after God. We may have been founded on some of those principles, but those principles are no longer. And so that might mean that we're living like Daniel's and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego's in our own land. We haven't even been taken away to another land. We're living in a land that has said, we don't need God. We don't need to hear about your God. And there will be times in our lives where that witness is just quiet like Daniel's was today. And there will be other times in our lives where that witness will be louder and bolder. John Oswald in the NIV commentary says, Christians should understand that we too live in a toxic culture. That is a culture that stands at odds with our faith. The God of modern culture is not the God of the Bible, but is ultimately the God of self. This strange God demands worship that creates values different than those of Christianity. Since the individual is at the heart of worship of secular culture, personal gratification and self-realization are prized over any sense of the other person, any sense of community, whether the community is the family, the church, the city, the nation, or the global community. That idea of let's look after me first is what's overtaking us. Not, how can I share with my neighbors? How can I share with my friends? How can I share with my family how much God loves them? That he loved them enough to send his son Jesus to the cross. This isn't different. This isn't something new. Jesus reminded us when he was on the earth that we are in the world, but we're not of it. Daniel had that down perfectly. He was in the world. He rises to prominence in the Babylonian governance. And yet he does not sway in his faith. He doesn't sway in his prayer life. He doesn't sway in his worship of God. And Jesus also reminds us to be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. We get that sense of that needing to, at one point, be gentle, be calm. And at other points, be as shrewd as a snake. And, and sometimes that strike of a snake where you're using your boldness in your faith. So is Daniel relevant to us today? Yeah, it is. Because we need to be reminded God is in control. We need to be reminded that we're living in a land just like Daniel had to live in. But Jesus has reminded us that he is in control. He's reminded us and he's told us exactly how we're to live and how we are to prepare for that day when he returns and calls his people home to be with him in heaven. And so we can choose, do we get overwhelmed by what's going on around us, by what the government chooses, or do we continue to live and act like Daniel? Seeking after God. Seeking after his kingdom. I love that this is the first chapter. Because if you're reading a book and the big event in it is that you ate vegetables and water and it made you stronger, you're likely going to put that book down. But in the weeks to come when we see what God is up to and how his 
progression of showing his power to this nation and to us today, we are going to be blown away by just how bold and how meek we can be at the same time and how God can be at work in this town, in this society, in this world. We have not been left here to our own devices. We have not been placed here in Charlie Lake and not given a, a, a textbook, not given a rule book, not being told how we are to live. The Word of God lays that out. And the Word of God tells us there are going to be times when people come and speak against us. And we're going to keep going forward one step at a time. God is in control. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that this book that was written uh, a number of thousands of years ago is still as relevant to us today as it was in the day that Daniel sat down and penned it as encouragement to those that were uh, under the oppression of the Babylonian government. Father, we are reminded that we live in a world that is much like that. We are not slaves, per se. We are not, haven't been overtaken by another place. And yet, Father, we live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world that does not proclaim your name. But, Father, you are in control. And with that knowledge, we can do anything. And I thank you for that. Father, we give you this time and I give you this week ahead as we go into this world that we will live like Daniel, that we will live in this fallen world and yet not shy away, not stop proclaiming your name, even if it's in a quiet way or in a bold way like we are to see. We give you this time and we give you this place. In your heavenly name, amen.